Let me tell you about Fable Beard Company, the official beard products of the American History Podcast. Now, if you're a beard man like myself, you know that an itchy beard is the worst thing there is. The good news is Fable has an amazing line of products that will soften that beard and make it smell amazing at the same time. Even better is that it's October, and their line of Halloween-themed scents are better than ever. Now, these limited edition products include the Collector, the Soul Miner, which is a great one, and my new favorite, the Doll Maker. This particular one has a scent profile of warm butterscotch, buttered rum, candy corn, and creamy caramel. It comes in a beard oil, a beard butter, and conditioner co-wash. I'm using the beard oil right now, and I know you're going to love it. Check it out at fablebeardco.com, and remember to use coupon code SEAN15 to get 15% off each and every single order. That's right, 15% off each order, not just the first one. All right, let's get back to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 7, Chang and Mao, Part 1. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen closely. and listeners to Season 4, Episode 7, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao, Part 1. And last time we talked about how messed up China was under the Qing Dynasty. We talked about the century of humiliation China suffered in the last years of the Imperial Dynasty, and we also quickly covered Sun Yat-sen and the end of the empire. Today we dive deeper into this period and start a series of episodes in which we will look at two incredibly important figures, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. Not only because they are incredibly important to the history of the 20th century, but they and China will have a role in leading China against the Japanese during World War II. So let's jump in to our time machine and travel back to China in the 1920s. Our song of the week this week is the song Three Years by Li Xianglan. See you in just a moment. Chiang Kai-shek was born on October 31st, 1887, one year after his mother and father had married. 
His paternal grandfather, Jiang Yubiao, owned about uh, five acres of land outside a small hamlet in the province of Zhejiang. Known for mist-shrouded mountains and beautiful waterfalls, the area is famous for producing some of the most expensive teas in China, including Wuling. Chiang's family were one of the top five families in the area when it came to their economic status, even if they were not a part of the rural elite. Now, Chiang's mother, Jiang Xuan, had two wives. I should say Chiang's father, Jiang Xuan, had two wives previous to marrying Chiang's mom. The newborn was named by his grandfather, Ruiyon, or Good Omen, and his official name was Zhong Zhen, Balanced Justice. In the early 20th century, his mentor, Sun Yat-sen, used the Cantonese pronunciation of his name, and thus the outside world came to know him as Kaishek. Cheng grew into a rebellious and temperamental son. The future leader of China, in his own words, said his mother needed to use the rod with him to ensure that he didn't grow up spoiled. Now, Cheng's identity and worldview were shaped by two distinct forces present in his formative years. The first was Confucianism, and, in truth, Neo-Confucianism. Now, if you're wondering, Neo-Confucianism sprang into being as a reaction against the Mongol invasions of the 13th century. The fall of China to these Central Asian nomads led to Chinese scholars and officials being obsessed with not only restoring, but safeguarding the cultural legacy of the nation. And by the late 19th century, art, music, and math were seen as far less important than the rote memorization of 2,000-year-old Chinese classics. However, the aspect of Confucianism that most affected the young Chang was its focus on self-discipline, duty, honor, courage, and activism over contemplation. As Chang's biographer Jay Taylor notes in his magisterial biography of the general, quote, the Confucian approach to morality was based on the political order and had a political objective, the creation of a harmonious, orderly society. It was an ethos shaped by millennia in which extended families lived in crowded, clan-based agricultural communities where survival depended on a combination of independent, household farming, and communal maintenance of infrastructure and order. End quote. This statement really says a lot, not just about Chang's mindset, but about the Chinese mindset overall. It also explains why the Chinese look at the West and are often horrified by our politics. In America, elections are chaotic to say the least. They often bring about disorder, at least for a brief time period, and to the Chinese, that's not something to be desired. I think this goes a long way to explaining why it is that, for example, American diplomats and their Chinese counterparts often appear to be taking or talking over each other, talking past each other. In the West, we're concerned with the, quote, will of the people. But in China, the will of the people, or the Chinese Communist Party would say the will of the people, is for a society that is orderly, one which provides infrastructure and maintains order. The second force shaping his political views, and it shaped the views of all of China's leaders in the 20th century, and even the 21st century, was the extraordinary loss of sovereignty, territory, and the humiliation that accompanied this. As I said last time, the record was astonishing. The British, French, Germans, and Russians all gained special rights over Chinese territory. Even Japan, shortly after the First Sino-Japanese War, was able to force China to pay an indemnity and add Taiwan to its growing empire. This shocked the Chinese, as the Japanese had derived their culture from China. Yet now they were in possession of an army and navy that was the equal of a major European power. The year Chang was born saw Sun Yat-sen embrace the idea of a modern democratic China. Sun spent some time living with his brother in Hawaii at one point and earned his medical degree in 1892 while he was living in Hong Kong. 
But just two years later, he decided to instead become a full-time rebel and dedicated his life to overthrowing the Qing dynasty. His first attempt at leading an uprising ended in failure, and Sun had to flee China, eventually ending up in Japan, which he saw as a natural ally of China. Speaking of which, the Boxer Rebellion and its aftermath was eye-opening for most Chinese. It was now apparent that the West and Japan had left the Chinese behind. These countries were not just stronger militarily, but they were far more advanced in things like science, technology, and even their standard of living. And while China was slowly devolving into chaos, Russia and Japan were attempting to wrest control over Manchuria, a vast region rich in mineral resources. A land of contrasting climates, the region has warm, humid, almost tropical summers, followed by brutally cold winters. It might have been the homeland of the Manchurian peoples, but by 1900, it contained more Han Chinese than it did Manchurians. In the end, thanks to its proximity to China and its own lack of natural resources, it's no wonder Japan looked to the area as being ripe for imperial expansion. Now, it was the Russo-Japanese War which set Young Chang on his way towards a military career. However, instead of raging, waging war in support of the dying Qing monarchy, the young man decided instead to fight as a Republican revolutionary. Thus, in February 1906, he transferred his studies to the Dragon River School. The reason being, he was attracted to a Neo-Confucian teacher named Gu Qinglian. Now, his new master encouraged his fascination with the scholar generals, specifically Wang Yangning, who lived from 1472 to 1529, and Zhang Guofan, 1811-1872. However, he would not spend long here. In a few months, the young man cut off his pigtail, a sign of his anti-Manchu views, and headed off to Japan. His life as a revolutionary had begun. Now, I failed to mention that Chang was married at this point. Actually, he was 14 when his mother, who was a widow already, decided it was time for her eldest son to marry. According to one relative, the mother was looking, quote, for a strong and willing daughter-in-law for herself and a servant for her son, end quote. His mother ended up choosing Mao Fumei, a 19-year-old from a nearby poor village who had partially bound feet. The new husband and bride, however, were likely to not have consummated their marriage right away, although eight months later, she was pregnant. Evidence points to this being a marriage of convenience, one Chang likely entered into simply to please his mother. Chang, when he left China for Japan, left his wife and child behind. Now, at first, he lived amongst the Chinese expat community uh, there in Tokyo, where he learned Japanese. The future leader of the Republic of China was impressed with what he saw. Japan was a land where everything appeared to run efficiently. The train system, the utilities, even the military, all of them were competently managed. Now, at first, he lived in Japan at his own expense, which suggests his father must have left him a nice nest egg. However, as he was not making headway in his quest to pursue this military career, he decided to go back to China and take the exam for the Central Army School. He passed, spent about a year at Baoding, then he took and passed another exam, which allowed him and other cadets to go to Japan, where they could receive further training. He enrolled in a school called Shimbugako in Tokyo, which was designed for Chinese students wishing to enroll in a Japanese military academy. Chang spent the next few years in Japan. This was when he started reading Minbao, the People's News, a paper for Chinese exiles living in Japan that introduced him to various Western thinkers, including Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Stuart Mill. The paper was, to put it bluntly, 
leftist in nature, if not actually communist. It, it advocated not only the overthrow of the imperial Manchu dynasty using all available means, but it also called for the nationalization of land and support for revolution around the world. Now, it might surprise you to learn that Chang, a mortal enemy of the Chinese Communist Party in the years to come, was part of the international Marxist revolutionary milieu. But this was fairly typical for many of the Chinese who were studying abroad. Part of what was driving this, at least in my opinion, was the fact that only the Communist International was talking about revolution. Free market capitalism did not talk about tearing down monarchies, so if one was young and looking to fight against an imperial regime, what choices did you have? Further, many Chinese students and intellectuals were fearful of Japan's steady move towards imperialism, especially in Korea. Having said that, while they were living in Japan, many of them were loath to criticize their hosts. It's amazing, uh, Sun Yat-sen himself even said that if Japan felt it deserved northern Manchuria in exchange for assistance in the revolutionary cause, then that was okay with him. In late 1909, Chang decided to leave his wife, but his mother was beside herself. She'd learned from a fortune teller that her son's first wife would bear a child who would become a high-ranking official. Taking matters into her own hands, Mama Chang escorted her daughter to Shanghai, where Chang was living at the time. At first, her son was obstinate, but eventually relented and did his duty when his mother threatened to kill herself. Thus, Chang and Mao Fumei lived together that summer, and when she told her husband she was pregnant, he sent her home. Sure enough, in April 1910, she gave birth to a boy named Ching Kuo, save or manage the country in English. Chang's biographer believes this name was picked not by the child's mother, but by his grandmother. Now, the fall of 1911 turned out to be the start of the revolution, even if it's accidentally. Chen Chimai, an early mentor to young Chang, was planning uprisings in the Yangtze Valley, including one in the city of Wuhan, when on October 9th, an explosion in the rebels' secret bomb-making factory alerted authorities to what was going on. The police were able to secure a list of suspects, and the roundups began. On what is referred to as, quote, Double Ten Day, end quote, or 10th October, rebellious officers and soldiers in the 8th Division started shooting loyalists. The revolution had begun. Now, sadly, this was also the start of the warlord period in Chinese history. Chang was now 24 years old. He had spent a total of three years in Japan, spoke and read the language fairly well. He had few actual friends in Japan, except perhaps amongst the ladies of the night, but he left the country with a strong sense of military discipline, revolutionary fervor, and a deep loyalty to his cause and its leader. Kaishek received a combat assignment, but had little role to play in the overthrow of the Qing government, um, in his part of China at least. On the 4th of November, the new army regiments seized control of the provincial capital with little to no resistance. The newspapers of the province had plenty of detail about the planning and execution of the uprising, but none of them mentioned Chiang Kai-shek. Now this is where it gets interesting for China, and one wonders what might have happened if the events did not turn out this way. On the 6th of January, a new National Assembly meeting in Nanking inaugurated Sun Yat-sen as, as the provisional president of China. However, there was a problem. The prime minister was appointed by the Manchus, and he was a former army um, grand marshal who just so happened to control northern China. His name was Yuan Shikai. Even all of the imperial powers except Japan 
were in favor of this. It appeared there might be a standoff, or worse, more violence. Sun, in a gesture that showed both his idealism and his naivete, stepped aside in favor of Yuan. The goal was to foment national unity under a coalition government, something um, we've kind of already mentioned. So how did Chang feel about this? Well, he disagreed with it. Sun had spent a total of 16 days in office before he stepped aside. 16 days living his lifelong dream meant nothing had truly been achieved. However, the fact that Sun was willing to make such a selfless gesture in the cause of unifying the nation had a major impact on his protege. In the end, Sun received so much praise for having done this, Chang would use the exact same tactic several times throughout his career. In August 1912, what had been known as the Alliance Party consolidated with four other groups to form the Kuomintang, or the KMT, also known as the Nationalist Party. The new party had a majority in the National Assembly, but even so, after weeks of discussion, Sun deferred to Yuan, declaring the Manchu should be president for 10 years. Hey guys, let me tell you about the sponsor for today's episode. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast opportunities such as the one I'm doing right now. They have host-read ads, interview segments, and more. The great thing about Podcorn is there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and pick opportunities right on the platform. You set your own rates and you collaborate with brands directly. The best thing is that you never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn will support you every step of the way to ensure that you are protected and compensated for the work you do. Click the link on my show notes page to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. Now, if you're wondering how long would Sun continue to play second fiddle, the answer is not long. By March 1913, the fragile alliance between the Yuan government and the KMT collapsed. This was the start of the Second Revolution. Chang returned to Shanghai to take over his old regiment and attempt to increase its size. He was accompanied by Chen, who had contacts in the Shanghai underworld. Or he attempted to anyway. The fact is that while they were anti-Manchu, the criminal underworld was not in any way pro-democracy, and the Manchus were gone, at least in Shanghai. Chang apparently carried on and attempted to take over an arsenal in a spectacular attack which he led. Narrowly escaping capture, he and his men fled down the Yangtze. In other words, it wasn't very successful. Now Yuan, still the head of the Republican government, ordered thousands of KMT supporters executed and led a campaign of terror against his opposition. This included killing members of the KMT, were part of the National Assembly. He then ordered the KMT to be dissolved and its leaders arrested. Left on the list, Chiang Kai-shek. Nonetheless, Chiang was taking no chances and he fled, along with Chen, back to Japan. By August 1913, the revolution was in tatters. Its leaders captured or fled, including Sun, who escaped to Yokohama. Assuming his old Japanese name, Nakayama, he set himself up in a house provided by the head of Japan's ultranationalist Black Dragon Society. Sun apparently had learned his lessons. He drew up plans for a new, highly disciplined and clandestine group named the Chinese Revolutionary Party. Members had to swear an oath of loyalty to Sun himself, who was now the undisputed dictator general of the party and the commander-in-chief of the Revolutionary Army. While some of his followers refused, Chen and Chang had no problem and readily took the oath. The new party platform adopted Sun's original idea that democracy could only exist in China after a period, left undefined, of tutelage under the Revolutionary Party and its military rule. Again referring to Jay Taylor, 
This meant that China would be ruled by an authoritarian military regime for some indefinite period moving forward. Now, let's um, set Chang to the side for a bit and delve into the life of Mao Zedong. Born December 26, 1893, Mao was the son of prosperous peasants. He is, without a doubt, a controversial figure, as well as one of the most important figures of the 20th century. Besides the fact that he led China in the Korean War, the Sino-Soviet split, the Vietnam War, and into the Cultural Revolution, he's also considered controversial due to the mass repression and death that took place in China under his leadership. The deaths range in number from 40 to 80 million people. Historians Jung Chang or Jung Cheng and John Halliday, authors of Mao, The Unknown Story, put the number of deaths that Mao was responsible for at well over 70 million. Mao himself was the third son, but his two older brothers did not survive beyond infancy, something which was quite common prior to the, late, to the mid to late 20th century. His mother, a devout Buddhist, apparently became even more devout, hoping that doing so would encourage the Buddha to protect her son. His name, Setong, is actually a two-part name. Se means to shine, and Tung means to the east, or the east. So his name means to shine on the east. If you are wondering at the irony of naming your son Setung, only to have him turn out to be one of the most notorious leaders of recent world history, keep in mind that the name reflected the desire of a Chinese peasant family for their son to do well in life. It's also ironic that Mao, the son of devout Buddhist mother, a woman he loved deeply all of his life, turned out to be an atheist communist. But as a child, he was also a Buddhist. He himself would say, quote, I worship my mother. Wherever my mother went, I would follow, going to temple fairs, burning incense and paper money, doing obeisance to the Buddha. Because my mother believed in Buddha, so did I, end quote. He would give up his Buddhist religion in his teenage years. But when I read this, I found it quite fascinating. Now, his parents might have been peasants, but they were not poor. His father had joined the army at one point to pay off family debt incurred by his father. He was able to read and write and became fairly well off, but remained frugal all of his life. The family home was about six rooms in number, and they were one of the richest families in their village. Now, this money allowed his father to send Mao away to receive an education. He was sent to a tutor's home where he was instructed in the Confucian classics. Difficult for most students, Mao was gifted with a fantastic memory and did well. His classmates remembered him as being not only able to recite, but write the difficult texts that were beyond many of them. Mao was also a good student when it came to history and Chinese language, poems, and even Chinese calligraphy. The future leader of China was a devout reader, known to read deep into the night. In fact, even when he was supreme leader of the People's Republic, it was said that half of his huge bed was piled with various Chinese classics. He even peppered his speeches with historical references. Now, the one subject that Mao had no grasp of was economics. He was a student who often clashed with his tutors and was expelled from at least three schools for being headstrong and disobedient. His father was not amused by this, as you can probably imagine. It was a source of tension between father and son, but his dad paid for his education, hoping the son would be able to at least earn enough or learn enough to keep his family accounts. However, numbers were not Mao's thing, and he disliked the task immensely. Now, one of the interesting aspects of the relationship between Mao and his father was the fact that the relationship was a violent one, and that's not surprising. What is surprising is the fact that Mao, after a certain age, fought back and often won. Mao despised manual labor, and he often told his father that he, the elder, should do more than Mao, the younger. 
Needless to say, this was unthinkably insubordinate to the Chinese way of thinking. Chinese society was all about filial piety, the idea of respect for one's parents, elders, and ancestors. To say Mao hated his father would probably be an understatement. In 1968, during the Cultural Revolution, he apparently told some of the tormentors of his enemies that he would love to have been able to see his father tormented in such a way. And both Mao and Chang grew up in a China that was undergoing vast changes, as you can probably tell from all this. The Qing dynasty, as we've said, was on the verge of collapse, and the nation itself was moving from the ancient to the modern. Mao's home province of Hunan was one of the most liberal and exciting places in the country. Think of it as the California of China. The capital of Hunan, Changsha, was an open trading port, and vast numbers of missionaries and foreign traders visited the city, bringing in Western ways and institutions. And one of the things that was changing was the educational system. Modern schools were springing up all over the region, and one was close to Mao. Thus, he convinced his father, with a little help from his relatives, to pay the tuition and accommodation fees for a five-month stint. The curriculum was eye-opening for the young man. Subjects included physical education, music, and English, as well as reading biographies of famous people like Napoleon, Rousseau, and even Abraham Lincoln. After his five-month stint was up, Mao was able to convince a teacher to enroll him in a school in the capital of Changsha. Thus, at 17, he bid the life of a peasant goodbye forever. Now, before we leave this phase of Mao's life behind, a note about the peasants he later professed to care about. As Chang and Halliday note, the historical record shows no such concern on the part of Mao. Apparently, he was in Changsha in 1921 during a famine. One of his friends made note of the event in his personal diary, but Mao's diary contains no mention of it at all. Further, in an essay about people from various walks of life, penned in 1919, he showed a remarkable absence of emotion when he mentioned peasants. In 1911, as the country was on the precipice of revolution, Changsha was seething with revolutionary fervor. Part of the problem for the ruling dynasty was they were ethnically Manchu, as we've mentioned several times before. Now, the bulk of the Chinese people were Han Chinese, thus to them, they were under foreign domination. Mao, aged 17, was able to catch up on the revolutionary issues through the newspapers. This was his first time reading the news, and it began what became a lifelong addiction. Now, as I noted earlier, in the fall of 1911 was the start of the revolution. Instead of the constitutional monarchy that Manchus had promised, a republic was declared on January 1, 1912, and in February, the child emperor, Puyi, abdicated. Mao, continuing his in-and-out pattern when it came to education, was at this point spending his time in the provincial library, devouring all that he could of the books in its collection. This included Chinese translations of Western writings. And while he had finally found something he loved, it didn't pay the bills. Thus, his father threatened to cut him off unless he found a proper school and made something of himself. So, in the spring of 1913, at the age of 19, he entered a teacher training college. It had no tuition, cheap board and lodging, and was open-minded for the time. It was here that Mao encountered communism for the first time. A portrait of Marx hung in the auditorium, and, for the 19-year-old, this was a time when, quote, a hundred flowers bloomed, end quote, at least in his mind. This was a time of great freedom for both Mao and his contemporaries. There was, at this point, no need for identifying documents. One could travel freely. In the summer of 1917, the future leader and a friend traveled to the countryside, earning food and lodging from peasants 
by doing calligraphy, which they used to decorate their front doors. While all of this paints a very romantic picture or portrait of the young man, what is important here is the conversations that he had with his friends. So here's an example, quote, The nature of the people of the country is inertia. They worship hypocrisy, are content with being slaves, and narrow-minded, end quote. This was a sentiment that was shared by many academics and educated people at the time, and I'd say it's still common today. But his views didn't stop here. One of his friends wrote in his diary, quote, Mr. Mao also proposed burning all the collections of prose and poetry after the Tang and Sung dynasties in one go, end quote. This theme would typify his rule, the destruction of Chinese culture. Now I want to take a moment or two to look at both men's character. First, let's discuss Mao, as I think he's a little more straightforward, so to speak. There are three things about his ethics and morality to discuss. First, Mao felt it was important to be loyal to one's own self, above everything else. He acknowledged other people, but argued they were there for him. Second, he shunned the constraints of duty and responsibility. Quote, people like me have a duty to ourselves. We have no duty to other people, end quote. He even rejected the idea that he was responsible for future generations. Quote, some say one has a responsibility towards future generations. I don't believe it. I am only concerned about developing myself. I have my desire and act on it. I am responsible to no one, end quote. Interesting to say the least. It explains a lot about him and his rule over China. Finally, he believed in that which would benefit himself, nothing else. And he cared not one whit about legacy. Quote, people like me are not building achievements to leave for future generations, end quote. Mao had no conscience. He was all about impulse. I think in some ways he was very similar in all of this to Hitler and Stalin. Mao believed that the so-called great heroes of history were not bound by the constraints of ordinary men. And of course, he put himself into the category of great hero. Quote, everything outside of their nature, such as restrictions and constraints, must be swept away by the great strength in their nature. When great heroes give full play to their impulses, they are magnificently powerful, stormy, and invincible. Their power is like a hurricane rising from a deep gorge, and like a sex maniac on heat and prowling for a lover, there's no way to stop them, end quote. <laughs> well, that's an interesting way of putting it. Mao believed, just as Hitler did, that he was not bound by the rules of society or the laws of economics. Perhaps unlike Hitler, however, Mao took delight in upheaval and destruction. Quote, giant wars will last as long as heaven and earth and will never become extinct. The ideal of a world of great equality and harmony is mistaken. Long-lasting peace is unendurable to human beings, and tidal waves of disturbance have to be created in this state of peace. When we look at history, we adore the times of war when dramas happened one after another, which make reading about them great fun, end quote. He ignores the fact that, for the majority of people, war is a miserable experience, nothing to be cheered. As for his plan for China and how to modernize it, the future leader was clear. Quote, we love sailing on a sea of upheavals. To go from life to death is to experience the greatest upheaval. Isn't it magnificent? End quote. This explains a lot when we consider that later on, millions of Chinese people would starve to death under his rule. This was all part of the plan. Mao said, quote, the country must be destroyed and then reformed, end quote. But he didn't just think, about, uh, think this about his own country. He applied it to the universe. Quote, this applies to the country, to the nation, and to mankind. The destruction of the universe is the same. 
People like me long for its destruction because when the old universe is destroyed, a new universe will be formed. Isn't that better? End quote. All of this from a man who throughout his life was obsessed with finding ways to cheat death and did everything in his power to ensure he had the best medical care possible. Now Chang, on the other hand, was a much more complicated man. He was raised a Buddhist similar to Mao. However, upon marriage to his fourth wife, he converted to Christianity. And we're going to see that a little bit of that in the next episode. And while some critics suggested this was for political reasons, I'm not sure I agree. First, he regularly read the Bible, and he had gone through it twice before he converted. So this doesn't appear to have been a decision made for political expedience. Um, furthermore, he attended Bible reading classes and regularly traveled with a copy of it. But why Christianity? Well, apparently, and this is according to his pastor on Taiwan, Chang found it appealing due to its consistency with Confucian teachings. Furthermore, the idea of persevering through suffering and difficulty, like Job, appealed to his ascetic Neo-Confucian outlook. Unlike his communist counterpart, a man known to hate all religion, and as we noted a moment ago who loved chaos, Chang was the opposite. In general, he had good relations with Chinese Muslims, and although he had tense relationship with Tibetan Buddhists, he held no animosity that I'm aware of towards Buddhists in general. Now, this doesn't mean that Chang was a saint. Far from it. His regime was just as corrupt as any other government, and it had its share of bloodshed. However, I think if you compare it to Mao's government, well, there is no comparison. So after graduating college, Mao set out for Peking, the capital of China. Unlike many of his radical Asian contemporaries, revolutionaries such as Ho Chi Minh, Mao did not travel to France or Russia. He was not good at language, and the idea of having to learn either French or Russian was daunting. Indeed, he only ever spoke his own local dialect of Chinese and never even learned the common speech that his own regime made the official language of the People's Republic of China. His time in the capital was not all that productive either. He found a job as a librarian for a while, earning a living wage, but within six months he was broke and had to return home. This must have been embarrassing for someone like Mao, and upon arrival he settled for a job as a part-time history teacher in a primary school. However, he arrived back home in 1919 at a pivotal moment in Chinese history. There were a number of foreign enclaves, also known as concessions, um, which were governed and occupied pieces of territory in key cities inside of China. They had uh, extraterritoriality. Thus, the French concession in uh, Shanghai was governed by French law, not Chinese law. Public opinion, having been awoken by the rise of Chinese nationalism in the early 20th century, led to demands that these mini-colonies be given back. However, the Paris Peace Conference, which did have a Chinese delegation, gave the German territories in China, which had been seized by Japan, to Japan as a reward for helping the Western powers in World War I. <laughs> Needless to say, this sparked a wave of anti-Japanese sentiment throughout the country. Japanese goods were burned in cities and towns, and shops that sold them were attacked. In Mao's hometown of Changsha, a city which contained so many foreign interests, the United States, Japan, and Britain had opened consulates, a militant student union formed, which, surprise, surprise, included teachers. Mao was actively involved in the movement as an editor of the magazine, the Shang River Review. This journal lasted all of five issues, but Mao continued to write in other journals. In late 1919, around the time of his mother's death, likely after her death, Mao traveled to Peking to lobby the government to oust the local warlord. 
Cheng Qingyao. It was, however, on his way back, via Shanghai, that Mao had an encounter which would change his life forever. In June 1920, he visited Chen Tuxiu, China's foremost Marxist intellectual. The professor was in the midst of forming the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. Now, while he was the foremost Marxist in China, the undisputed leader of Chinese Marxists, the idea of forming a Chinese Communist Party was not one that originated with either him or any of the other Chinese Communists. It was one that was born in Moscow. The newly formed Soviet government set up the Communist International, the Comintern, to foment revolution and influence policy throughout the world. In August 1919, the Soviets launched a plan to subvert the Chinese government, committing men, money, and weapons to the cause. This was just the start of a three-decade-long effort to turn China communist, a struggle which came to fruition in 1949 when the communists defeated the nationalists and Mao came to power. In the meantime, it's June 1920 when Mao arrives, literally turning up on Chen's doorstep. He lucked out. There was a meeting of the embryonic CCP, and Mao was there for the founding. He was not invited to be a founding member of the party, as he had not even said he was a true believer yet, and the founders were all prominent Marxists. An interesting fact about Mao is that he didn't formally join the party in these years. He was approaching 26 when, in a letter to a friend in France, Mao expressed the idea that he deeply agreed with using the model established by the Russians to reform China and the world. As Chang and Holiday note, Mao had an interesting relationship with communism. He was not in any way a fervent believer, even when he was the head of the party. In my mind, Mao was simply an opportunist, ready to take advantage of all situations that came his way. So these are the two men who came to lead China at various points in the 20th century. I could continue to talk about these men, and actually will, um, because we've only just scratched the surface. However, this episode is already pretty long, so we're going to cut it off here. Okay, um, I do think this is at least a good introduction to both of these towering figures in the early 20th century. Thus, we're going to stop this one here. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please hop over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. That really helps the algorithm and will allow others to find the show. Share it with your friends and get the word out. If you'd like to support the show, head over to Patreon, where for $10 a month, you'll get access to two bonus shows and the episodes a week ahead of time and commercial-free. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4 of the American History Podcast. We'll see you next time. Shut it off or I'll rip. Oh, 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 oh,